they're really good too. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and to celebrate your parentness in our lives. Thank you, Father. Please just open our hearts to you even as we open up your word to us and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Something that struck me uh, a while back, and I thought it was appropriate to bring up here, is, um, is how much the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus. Uh, of the what, over 34,000, there's over 34,000 red-letter words in Scripture. But if you read all of them, if all you did was read out loud those words of Jesus words in Scripture, it would take five hours. That sounds like a lot of time. But Jesus spent three full years with his disciples, right? He spent 26,000 hours with his disciples, teaching them living alongside of them. And of those teachings, we have five hours. So what did he do the other 25,995 hours? Was that time wasted? Was that teaching wasted? Did they just watch a lot of Netflix and not do any teaching? I mean, was it not particularly good teaching so nobody wrote down? If you know me at all, you know that at my heart, I'm a teacher. I love to teach. I, I love to teach in Sunday school. I love to teach college classes. I, I, I love that. I love imparting knowledge. But it's interesting to me that if we don't think that Jesus didn't teach those other 26,000 hours, and if we don't think that that was a waste, then apparently Jesus thought teaching is really important. Instruction is really important. But investing time, investing life, is what, 52,000 or, time, or 5,200 times more important. That is what he invested his time in. That's the stuff that lasted. All those hours that he spent eating fish and telling jokes, and all those times where they discussed how to how to interact with that shopkeeper that we don't get in scripture. All those times when they watched how he handled himself when uh, the guy in Ireland drifts into your lane and you bash into the curve and pop a tire. All those times, those life-shared experiences, somehow that's the important thing. Because if you remember, we've talked about this before, the word disciple or to disciple someone, remember what that means? It isn't just to teach them. To disciple, to be a disciple is to literally walk in the same steps. If you're discipling someone, you're saying, here's where I'm walking, walk in my footsteps. That's, that's, that's what parentness is all about, isn't it? At its core. It's saying, walk where I walk, step where I step, act like I act, say like I say, do like I do. And there's a lot of times when you can specify that, right? Here's how you do this. Here's how you change oil. Here's how you do this. But the vast majority of your time spent as a parent is spent sharing life, Right? It's not the things necessarily that you are instructing. It's the stuff that you're teaching by having them watch your life because your children are learning from you, right? And if you say, I don't have any children, eh, you're surrounded by children. Some of them are even small and young. But you're surrounded by people who are learning from your example. Everything you do, everything you say, how you do it, they learn. That's how you life, don't they? 
During our vacation, we took maybe 7,912 pictures. I don't know exactly. That's an estimate. Um, a lot of photographs. But early on, I realized I could spend the entire time with my face behind a camera and miss it. I don't want a vacation where I remember, oh, I remember taking that picture. I remember taking that picture. I remember taking that picture. I want a vacation where I come back and I go, I remember being there. Do you remember when you did this? Alex, do you remember when they stuck your face in the, in the river? That's what I want. Not just, not just the photograph of that. I want the experience of that. Ask Alex about that. His name was Fiona. But to be able to remember those moments, because I spent them, I shared them with my family, to be able to remember that meal, not just because that was delicious, but because I shared all, everything with my family, that shared life, that's what it's all about. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to engage in. Because so many of us live in such a way that we're, we're living for specific experiences, specific moments of teaching, instead of, instead of living for those relationships. If I were to ask you on a given day, if I came over to your house at the end of the day and asked you how you spent your day, what happened? We'd be tempted to give up events. I did this, I ate this, I went to work at this time. How many of us stopped to think, this is how I engaged? I had a wonderful prayer time. We had this great time with my kids. I engaged with my wife and we talked about such and such. Relationships can so easily take a back seat. I'm not saying that doing things is wrong. I'm not saying that instruction is wrong. Just stop and think about what the Bible talks about in terms of parentness. And, and I've I guess I should, I've talked about this before. When I say parentness, I'm making a distinction between parentness and parenthood. Parenthood is essentially an accident of birth. You don't even need a license. You just need to either plan carefully enough or not plan carefully enough, and you can be a parent. Congratulations. You have entered the neighborhood of parenthood. You may have no qualifications whatsoever other than fertility. Parentness is when you say, I am going to live like a parent. I'm going to act like a parent. I'm going to try to live this out. Hopefully, your parentness goes along with your parenthood. But a lot of people have parenthood without parentness. Have you ever noticed? But you can have parentness without parenthood, can't you? Never had a child and yet invest your life into other people and help grow them? Today, I want to talk about parentness. I want to talk about how we grow our children, how we have this attitude, because God has given us human lives to grow, to disciple, to encourage, and not just to feed it food so that it doesn't kill over and die, but to invest and feed mentally and spiritually and emotionally and personally and relationally. I want to disciple my child. So, um, when I've talked about parentness to people over the years, when I've done parenting classes, I always start off with talking about discipline and the importance of, of discipline. Not, not necessarily disciplining them, though that's part of it, but disciplining us as parents to start and say, I need to make sure that I'm being very conscious in what I'm doing, that I self-discipline, because I want to make sure that um, what I do as a parent is based less on how I feel about my child and more about how I feel about my responsibility toward my child. You know, if you know me and my kids at all, I, I, I love them dearly. I love to snuggle with my kids. I love to snuggle with my dog. Missed my dog. Dog's doing well. But um, 
But my, my parentness cannot be based on my feelings. Because there are going to be some days where I feel really warm and fuzzy toward my kids and I just want to hug them and I say, I love you. That's great. If the next day I don't feel so warm and fuzzy toward my children, they went and broke everything, screwed everything up, do I not snuggle them? Do I not hold them? Do I not tell them, I love you? Because I don't feel as snuggly. My punishments for them need to be the same no matter how I feel. My snuggling needs to be the same no matter how I feel. My words to them need to be the same no matter how I feel. I cannot punish my child more because I'm angry than I would if I were happy. There's a word for that in English. It's called abuse, right? If you punish your child because you're angry, that's abuse. You might punish them while you're angry, but can't be tempered by your anger. So I have to come back to this attitude of parenting that is not based on my feelings toward my kid, but based on my, my responsibility that I have. Now, obviously, if you haven't noticed, this sermon is unabashedly about parenting. And I, I do this for a couple of different reasons, because I know that some people will say, yeah, but not everybody's a parent. You're going to alienate people. Number one, it's Father's Day. Give me a break, man. It's, I'm going to do. I'm going to talk a little bit about being a dad or being a parent. I get to do that at least once. Number two, I've already said, you don't have to be a physical dad, a physical mom, in order to parent other people. You should all be pouring out your life and other people. I mean, Mark, how many kids do you have at your camp on a, on a given week? You could have a hundred kids that he is, in some degree, parenting. He's being dad to 100 kids. In some ways, I'm dad to 100 kids on a, on a weekly basis as a church. You can be pouring your life into other people, whether or not you've ever given birth. But third, and most importantly, everything that we're talking about here, I think primarily applies to how God parents us. He's the ultimate dad. I mean, isn't that how Jesus started the, 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 the Lord's Prayer? What's, how does it start? Our Father... Nobody had ever prayed like that. But he says, I want you to start by saying, Dad. Remind yourselves that the Lord of all creation is Dad. He's the perfect Dad. So when I, when I think of parenting, I always, my brain always goes to Proverbs 22.6. I've talked about this a lot over the years, but I love this verse. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Very familiar and very clear, right? Tell a kid what he should do, and if you do that enough, when he's old, he'll just keep doing it. He'll be on autopilot, right? Shortest sermon ever. Have a wonderful day. Happy Father's Day. There's more to it going on in this verse, though, but I love that verse. And there's a couple of things in here that are worth bringing up. I'd love to say that the context around it would help, but it's not that kind of chapter. It's a chapter that's got all these disconnected nuggets of wisdom. There is a verse later on in the chapter, chapter 22, verse 15, that seems like it's saying roughly the same thing. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it from him. And there's all these people that go, right, beat them senseless, then they'll learn. Ah, Bible says so. Not really what that verse is getting at either. Because you need to unpack this. You, you need to unpack and look at this. Like that, that phrase, bound up. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That was actually used earlier in Proverbs. Proverbs 3.3, let love and faithfulness, literally God's loving kindness and God's 
faithfulness and truth. Never leave you. Bind them up around your, your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You need to consciously bind yourself up with wisdom and bind yourself up with God's loving kindness and bind yourself up with God's faithfulness and truth. You're supposed to be binding yourself up with that, stapling yourself to that. But apparently, if I can cross-apply, the reason we need to actively bind those things to us is because we don't start off with those things, right? Because, as we're told in chapter 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. We start not wise. I wish I could say we come out of the womb obedient and loving and caring and conscientious and thoughtful. I have two wonderful children. Both of them start off really obnoxious. By adult standards, if you met somebody who walks up to you and goes, feed me, feed me or I'll scream at you. By the way, I'm uncomfortable. Wipe me. And you go, do you even care about me? Feed me! No, do you even feed me? Go, okay. As an adult, that's a horrible person, isn't it? Megan didn't care about me. All she wanted was her bottle. She didn't care if I'd eaten yet. Alex didn't care if I was asleep. He was awake. And he wanted me to know. Folly is bound. Okay, not every folly is necessarily a bad thing. It's just sometimes it's more ignorance. Uh, the, the funniest line of the entire vacation was at the museum in Waterford in, in Ireland. And, and it just resounded. The, the museum uh, had, a, had a tour guide, and she was walking along. And she had this tour of little kids from, uh, obviously, they're all dressed the same. They're obviously some little Catholic school. And she was saying, now, do you, do you know when the, when the Anglo, oh, Anglo-Normans when the Anglo Normans arrived in, in 1174, do you know who they actually found here, who was already living here? And one little kid, absolutely earnest. I mean, the most, I can't tell you how earnest this kid's face was when he answered. In, 1180, in 1174, when the Anglo-Normans invaded, do you know who they actually found here? Who was already living here? Pope John Paul, was it? <laughs> I couldn't concentrate on anything for like five minutes after that. Because he's just going with the only thing. He's like, he's very old, and he's a historical figure. That's the only thing I could think of. Pope John Paul, was it? No. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. It's not always horrible folly. But you have to learn wisdom. And we're supposed to bind ourselves up with wisdom, aren't we? We as wise, mature adults, we're supposed to be binding our hearts with God's love, God's loving kindness, with God's truth, with God's wisdom. Because how can we possibly teach foolish people to be wise if we aren't? Logically, can we? Can you teach someone how to rebuild an engine if you have no idea how to rebuild an engine? Can you teach someone Latin if you've never learned Latin? You go, well, I can th- try to learn it. Go, well, then you will have learned Latin. You can't teach what you don't know. And so implicit in all this is the idea that we need to to discipline ourselves. We need to be discipled, and we need to make sure that everything that we're doing is teaching our children the right stuff. I can't be be using that rod of discipline on my children and hoping that if I just tell them what they're supposed to do and tell them to ignore everything that I'm doing, they're going to come out healthy. I'm going to be a massive stress ball all the time. But Asher, I'm going to tell you, you shouldn't be a massive stress ball. If I tell him every day, once a day, not to be a massive stress ball, and I spend 
twenty three hours and fifty nine minutes out of that day being a massive stress ball, what's he going to learn? Two things. I know you went with massive stress ball, and you're right. He's also going to learn I'm a hypocrite. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And I fail in this all the time. I fail in this all the time. But luckily, I have a father who says, you're a child, which means you're foolish, and you need to learn. And I have a father who is incredibly, for lack of a better term, self-disciplined. My father, my heavenly father, never, never loses his temper, though he can be angry. He never punishes me out of his anger, though he does punish. He never decides that today he loves me more than he did yesterday. He always loves me. I can learn his words, but even more so, I see his heart day in and day out. And that's what's crucial. Train a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Which we could say is all about telling a child what to do, and then they've learned it enough that when they're older, they, they do. But it's more like when they're old, when they become an adult like me, they will have learned self-discipline, right? Which again implies that I should have been showing self-discipline. I should be having self-discipline myself. That's implicit in it. Train a child up in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not turn from it. There's some really interesting words here. And Solomon is like the wisest guy who ever lived, right? So I've got to think he chose his words carefully. For instance, that's the first word, train. Hanuk is a weird word to use here. Hanuk is not ever used in scripture to mean train anywhere else. It's only used like four times. Lamad is the word that you would normally use for train. That's used like 87 times, something like that. But, but no, Hanak is used here and it's an unusual word because it usually means to dedicate, not to train. It's the base from the word Hanukkah, which is all about the dedication of the temple, rededication of the temple. Hanak is used in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7 to talk about the dedication of the temple. It's used in Deuteronomy 20 to talk about how a man might dedicate a new house that he's just moving into. You're not training the house. You're not training the temple. But you are giving it to the Lord. So somehow this is more meaning dedicate your child in the way that they should go. And even that, in the way he should go, that's the way it was in pretty much every English translation, at least the vast majority of them. But in the original Hebrew and in the Spanish, Brian Berry, if you're watching this, um, it literally says, in his way or on his path. So it's not train a child in the way they should go. It's more like dedicate a child to their path, to what they're doing, which, which doesn't mean that you don't tell them what to do. It doesn't mean that you don't give them direction, but it's far more interactive. It's far more figuring out what that child's path is and helping them to achieve that. If you are going to dedicate Olivia and dedicate Philip to the ways that they should go, that if you're going to do this, according to this verse, you can't do that the same way for both of them. You don't do it in, with inequity. You don't like one of them better than the other. You don't spend more time with one than the other. But each of them, it has to be something unique because you're training and dedicating them to their path, the way that they should be going. 
You should give them direction. You should absolutely say, no, don't step on that landmine. But you might have to explain this somewhat differently. I mean, I could even, I can even jump back if I really want to get crazy and talk about the etymology of Hanak and say, technically, it doesn't even mean dedicate. If you take it back far enough, the word itself comes from a, a very primitive root that means to feed. I know. To, to dedicate a child to de- is to say, let me feed you. I feed your heart. I feed your spirit. I feed your mind. I feed your body. But I'm going to give you what you need and give you over to the Lord. I'm going to put what we need to have in the temple. I'm giving it over to the Lord. I'm going to make sure that my house has chairs and beds and things before we move in. I'm giving it to the Lord. I want to do everything that I can to talk about dedicating, initiating, beginning, feeding Somebody might say, well, what about verse 15, though? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it from them. You keep making it sound like all we should do is hug them and feed them and be nice. And you go, shouldn't we be disciplining them also? Absolutely. Rods are there to beat people. Sometimes you have to beat your child. The Bible says so. Okay, actually, maybe that's not the way to take that. If you're wincing at that, maybe let me back up one step and say, even your verbal stuff, you should say, I I need to make sure that maybe I don't hit them with a stick. Maybe, though, I I do use my words to discipline them. I use my words to, to direct them. I use my words for punishment. I use my words for uh, correction. But I should be doing that. Anything that's unpleasant enough to be a negative reinforcement to make sure that they don't stick their finger in the light socket, or do it again. That's a good thing, as long as I'm doing it in good ways and with a good heart. Sometimes as parents, if we're working on making sure that we're feeding our children and loving our children, we can say, but I'd, I would hate to actually punish a child. I don't want to make a child cry. I hated seeing my child cry. Knowing that they cried because of something I said or because I made them go sit in the room or I grounded them, to know that I made my child cry, it's heartbreaking. But if I do it right, I make them cry once. And then they don't do that thing anymore. If I make my child cry once because of how he reacted to his mom when he was two, so that he would never do that again when he's 5 or 12 or 25. And he learns how to react to his co-workers. He learns how to react to his teachers. He learns how to react to his children. Because when he was 2, I made him cry once. Then making him cry is a kindness, yes? Instead of making him cry horribly when he's 5 and ruin friendships when he's 15 and lose a job when he's 25 and seeing him learn the worst things, if I make him cry once... If I make Megan cry because she can't cross the street and thus prevent her from getting her leg broken because she got hit by a car because she wasn't paying attention, then it was a kindness to make her cry once, isn't it? There's a reason why the Bible says, no, 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 it's, it's good to do this. In fact, Proverbs 13 tells us, he who spares the rod, who doesn't actually punish wrongdoing, hates his son. He who loves him is careful to discipline him. Make sure that you stop and think about this. A fool spurns his father's discipline, we're told in Proverbs 15. But 
But whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Ultimately, if your parents are there trying to correct you, to protect you, yay, yes? You should actually appreciate that. If your parents are abusive, you should not, and you should say something. I'm sorry, I'm putting the responsibility on the kids there, aren't I? What responsibility does that put on us as parents? We need to make sure that we actually discipline, we actually correct, we actually punish. But we need to do it in such a way that is never abusive. It's so easy, because we're so broken, to go one direction or another, to say, I'll let them go whatever path they want to go. That's not what that verse is saying. Right, I will direct them, I'll force them into this cubbyhole. That's not what that verse is saying. You have to have some wisdom. You have to be discipled by wiser people and follow the direction that the Lord gives us in how to do this. Proverbs 23 says, Don't withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he won't die. <sighs> They're not going to like it if you ground them. I, again, I'm not saying actually hit them with a child. I, I know I've joked about that because, you know, it's funny. Don't hit your kid with a stick. I'm not telling you to do that. But don't ever withhold punishment. Don't ever withhold discerning discipline. They need that. But you need to do that in such a way that it is healthy and loving and corrects, never there to express emotion. If you're abusing a kid, that's, that's how you scar a child. That's a, not a healthy thing to do. But, but a verbal, a relational rebuke that prevents them from making worse decisions, correcting them appropriately when they're fine will help when they're five will help them not make really bad life choices when they're 20 because kids will make really bad life choices when they're 20 because like you they're human and broken and unlike you they don't have your experience so we want to invest healthy things in our child so that they don't then again is that the only reason you use a rod is a rod only for punishment. Can you think of any other biblical verses that use a rod? By rod and thy staff, they comfort me, right? Psalm 23, when you're, you're talking about a shepherd taking care of his sheep, yes, that rod is there to punish a wolf that's coming up. Yes? It might even be there to punish, for lack of a better term, a sheep. You might poke a sheep going, nope, 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 get away from that other sheep, what you're doing is inappropriate, whatever. But it's also got like a crook on the other end so that you can catch them before they fall off a ledge because I've been in Ireland and Scotland for the last two weeks. Let me tell you, sheep are stupid. Sheep are just plain stupid. We actually watched, we stopped for a second, we watched a sheep. He had literally been on the other side of a tree and he's sitting there going, this, this really scared bleeding. And, and you saw this bigger sheep walk around the, sheep, walk around the tree and go, bah. and he went, bah, and sprinted over to her. And I'm like, you lost your mom because you were on the other side of a tree and you freaked. <laughs> sheep are stupid. So having a shepherd who's got a shepherd's crook to push them along, having a shepherd that has a shepherd's crook to pull them back, it is still corrective. But it doesn't have to be punishment. It is still discipline. It's saying, nope, we're going this direction now. Time to go in. Nope, time to go. Floyd, time to go in. You know, 
It's corrective. It's discipline. And it's a good thing. Even David says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I don't want to wander off. As long as the shepherd is there with his staff, I know I'm safe. It is still restrictive. But we restrict my dog to stay in his, in his yard. We restrict our dog to be on his leash so he doesn't run into traffic and get hurt. As a parent, part of my job is to restrict my children. Not because I'm scared for them. If I do that, it's now based on my feelings toward them, and again, I'm going to parent badly, yes? It shouldn't be based on my fear or my feelings. It should be based on what is best and healthiest for that child. That's why I have this staff in the beginning. So this rod here in Proverbs 22 is still the same rod that you see in in Psalm 23. It's still this rod of correction. But you have to stop and think, why am I doing this? Even in Proverbs 22, 15, folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline will drive it from him. Actually, literally it says, will distance him from him. It doesn't necessarily have to beat the child to to make the, the wrongness go away, the folly go away. Using that rod to help them move past it, to distance themselves from it. There's a way of looking at this that's healthy. That's why we want to, as parents, and again, parentness, not necessarily parenthood, as parents, as anybody who's investing in someone else, we need to be investing our lives, our time, our energy, our heart, how we live on a regular basis in them. But we also need to be investing our correction, our encouragement. Doesn't the Bible even say that as Christians we should be lovingly correcting one another? Saying, in all good faith, I love you, and because of that, I saw what you did there, maybe you should reconsider doing that. Not, I've got it all together, and you are so messed up. That's abusive. But to say, I see you stepping off the path, and I don't want you to go too far. We all have that responsibility to encourage wisdom in one another. That's what we're supposed to be doing. In fact, we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says specifically, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, which namely that it will go well with you and you may enjoy long life in the earth. That's one-tenth of the Ten Commandments. Children, actually obey your parents. But I love that Paul's very next phrase here is, and fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord, or more literally in the Greek, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't upset them needlessly. Instead, nurture them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't abuse that privilege. Be wise. Be self-disciplined. Let your children, let them discipline you. Parents, discipline appropriately. Because they will learn what you teach them. You have to go to church. It's Sunday and you have to do it. We all have to do it. You have to do it too. If you say that week after week, they're going to learn that, right? Hey, we get to go to church. We get to be with other, other Christians. This will be really cool. You get to see Pastor Kevin in his kilt. Yay, let's go. They'll learn from that. You shouldn't respond in anger. And then everything I do is responding in anger. They're learning from that. They're going to learn how to judge people by the color of their skin, by their height, by how much hair they have, by their accent. They're going to learn whether or not they should smoke. They're going to learn whether or not they should drink. They're going to learn when it's okay to fight. They're going to learn when it's okay to cheat, when it's never okay to cheat. They're going to learn that not by what you say, but by the life you live with them. 
And you can do that very, very positively. You can do that very, very negatively. When we were at the Roman ruins uh, near Hadrian's Wall, our tour guide was a guy named Paul, who was a retired uh, sergeant major in the British Royal Corps of Engineers, which you could tell from the moment you met him. You go, you're ex-military, aren't you? He's very proud to say he was. His father was also a sergeant major in the Royal Corps of Engineers. His grandfather was also in the Royal Corps of Engineers. His son was also in the Royal Corps of Engineers. Two years ago, when his grandson was born, he went down to Derby and got his buddies in the enlistment office to, uh, to write up enlistment papers for his grandson and date them 2038. <laughs> that would be five generations blissfully happy to be in the Royal Corps of Engineers. That is not a statistical anomaly. Wow, what are the chances that they, they were like? They learned from each other. They saw the previous generation and they did what their father did. Four times running. They're going to learn from you. They're going to learn from you. They're going to learn from you. Not just what you say, but what you do, how you treat your spouse. Perhaps we should dedicate ourselves to raising our kids, dedicate ourselves to dedicating our children, discipline ourselves to disciplining them, because they will learn. Dedicate a child onto his path. Dedicate a child onto his path. Find out, using discernment, what God wants for them. Help them to do it in a way that actually honors God. Dedicate a child onto his path, and even when he's old, he won't turn from it, because that's the way he's learned. That's how she's learned from the people who she loves and whom she knows love her. It's a great privilege. It's an absolute great privilege to be able to live out parentness. Whether you've ever experienced parenthood, you can all experience parentness. There are biblical ways of how to do that. And God has been so consistent in living that out as such a perfect father. And I fall short so many times. Especially when I'm sleepy after a two-week trip. I get grumpy. But my children show me grace. My wife shows me grace. My father shows me grace. So children, I'm telling your parents right now not to abuse you, not to drive you to needless frustration. That's their responsibility. Today, because it's Father's Day. No, because it's Sunday. Wait, no, because it's a day that ends in Y. Let me encourage you guys to remember how blessed you are to have the parents that you have. I know they're broken. I know they're not great. Everybody's parents are broken. You might say, mine are broken more. Fine, yeah, you win. Everybody's broken But you have been surrounded in your lives, and now I can talk to all of us, with people who have wisdom and have tried to pour it into you. Whether they were your father or your mother or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or whomever, you've had people around you trying to pour their life into you. Let me encourage you. Grow in that. Grow closer to the Lord and pour your life into others. Parentness. Amen? Join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the parentness that you've given to all of us. The parentness that we've experienced from others, the parentness that 
we have the opportunity to to pour into others. And especially on this day, I thank you for the fathers in our midst. Thank you for every single one of them that honors you. And I pray, Lord, for those that don't work your will in them. Sometimes it requires parentness from our children. Our children, if they're wiser than us, need to pour back into us. But I pray, Lord, help all of us to try to seek your face and to seek honor in you first and foremost. We give all this to you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.